When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features University of Cambridge political scientist John Donne. Political theorists know of John as a deeply astute and penetrating thinker, a highly respected member of the so-called Cambridge School, who has made seminal contributions to many aspects of our political and historical understanding, from John Locke to the limits of reason and politics to the history of democracy. But for me, When I think of John, I simply think of someone who is trying his best to alert us to the very real and pressing global concerns that our current political structures are so conspicuously failing to appropriately address, including, but by no means limited to, the COVID-19 pandemic. Let me begin by picking up on a major thrust of your recent comments during our filming session, which resonated strongly with me, not only because of the of the trenchant nature of the comments themselves, but also because it reminded me of the sort of thing that you had said during our film conversation of seven or eight years ago, when you said the point of political institutions isn't to look good. The point of political institutions is to have good consequences. And my sense is that that's a central overlooked point in the structure of our government. I also have the, the, the sense that the pandemic serves as an interesting test case because it's very clear what good consequences are and it's very clear what bad consequences are. Would you agree with that or, or would, you, would you disagree with that? Yeah, no, I think it is very clear what bad consequences are. It's not so clear what looking good is. Um, to go back to the way you put the question. And um, I I suppose my general view now is that the trajectory of the plague has, um, in a way, I mean, ensured that uh, no governments in the world look very good and that um, most of them look terrible because they have so uh, catastrophically failed to protect their populations effectively, which is, after all, their primary task. I'm going to pick up on on the primary task in protecting their citizens and talk a little bit more about moral values. But before I do, how would you assess writ large with varying degrees of terribleness, shall we say, the responses of the various governments over the past two years? Well, there have been a lot of governments and a lot of responses, so that's a bit stiff. Uh, I, I would say that some governments have quite evidently failed uh, catastrophically. And um, in a sense, you can say that the ones which have had the hugest death tolls must have failed catastrophically. 
So the United States government has failed catastrophically, the British government has failed catastrophically, the Russian government has failed catastrophically. I have innumerable sharp reservations about the merits of the government of the People's Republic of China. But by that particular criterion alone, you can't say it has failed catastrophically. And I would say the, the countries which come to mind, which in the end have managed to do best, uh, have done so for reasons which are not clear, in, uh, weren't clear anyway beforehand, in their political structures or the political ideologies uh, which presumptively sanctioned them. Yeah, I think, for example, the um, government of the um, Confederation Helvétique has done a lot better than most other European governments. But I don't think it's done better than lots of other European governments because it's slightly less far away from the dreams of Rousseau. I think it's done so because it's um, rich and has been fairly um, successfully curated without interruption for a very long time. And it hasn't been, it's been able to do so because it hasn't been interrupted in the way that um, most governments on the European continent have been by the catastrophe of the Second World War. What's made it possible for it to do as well as it is isn't something which you can state, I think, in a simple, clear way. On the other hand, I think some countries which I would have expected to have done better than they have, for example, Sweden, it's not so clear why they haven't done better, except at a purely narrative level, where in fact any sense of explanation disappears into a story, really. I mean, I could say, obviously, quite a lot more. I mean, the, the, uh, basically, the Chinese government and the um, Australian government and, you know, more the New Zealand government um, have, in some sense, done relatively well protectively by shutting their countries off from the world. That's a more remarkable thing to have, have been able to do in the case of China than it is in the case of uh, Australia, and it's a lot more remarkable than it is in the case of New Zealand. But although New Zealand has to export to um, enjoy its standard of living, but still, it doesn't have to export in a way which requires an enormous amount of human interaction of a personal kind to sort out the bargains, whereas um, I think obviously Australia to quite a large degree does for a variety of reasons. And, and actually the, the Chinese government does too on a very different basis. So it's really complicated. I'd like to return to China, and especially China vis-a-vis -vis the United States in a moment. But before I do, I'd like to drill down a little bit deeper into not just to what extent different countries have been successful or less unsuccessful, perhaps is a better way to put it, but also aspects of the moral values associated with the citizenry and why they were unsuccessful and to what extent that's reflective of the collective or at least largely endorsed different attitudes of the citizenry and in turn how that relates to democratic structures and the, the strengths and weaknesses of democratic structures. So those are lots of words. Let me try to be a little bit clearer in what I mean. There obviously are all sorts of reasons for why countries can be more and less successful at being able to limit the effects of a pandemic. First and foremost, there are many unknowns. There are all sorts of natural 
wrong tracks that one can go down, even with the best of all possible intentions. And then to that, there are constraints that each country shares. You mentioned Switzerland and its perhaps relative success. Well, Switzerland is a small country. Switzerland is a country where it's a lot easier, I think, to, for all sorts of reasons, geographical, historical, demographical, to close the borders down and perhaps seal itself off from other places and other countries. There are all sorts of different ways of behaving reasonably or properly or effectively or efficaciously. And the ones that I'd like to zero in on are the ones that are reflective of moral values of a country and the ones that are reflective of a, of a particular susceptibility, you might say, when majoritarian rule or large numbers set those moral values. And, and so what I'm trying to get at is the link between morality and democracy and to what extent it might be troubling on a moral level when decisions are made for the benefits of large constituencies that are tied to a particular agenda that may not actually be in the interests of, let's just say, all the citizens? Well, all countries have fairly sharp divisions of interest amongst their citizens. I think the, the key contrast uh, in the case of what we um, normally speak of as democratic countries is, is a contrast between the extent of uh, citizen solidarity. And uh, the fact is that the United States of America, for example, has a very, very unsolidary citizenry. It has a sharply divided citizenry, often a hysterically divided citizenry. And uh, because of its peculiar constitution, not in any sort of um, accurate and um, legitimate way, but practically, the lack of solidarity in the citizenry transposes quite effectively into the organization of the state. And the result is that the state is very, very much weaker uh, because of the extent to which the citizens are divided. I mean, there are all sorts of other things about the United States. I mean, the United States has a, um, a level of imaginative relaxation in face of the dynamics of markets, which is unusual in populations and which has been a product of a very long history. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that, in fact, there aren't, that the divisions between the citizenry aren't very, very sharp over precisely the issues that you pose. I mean, it's certainly the case that the more educated part of the Democratic Party's um, voters believe that the um, motives and uh, practical judgments of a substantial majority of the Republican voters are beneath contempt. And it's certainly true that not least those uh, voters, but also the uh, Republican voters who um, have uh, very, very much uh, more wealth and, and uh, income, while they don't necessarily think that the Democratic opponents are stupid and ignorant, they certainly do regard them with no uh, element of uh, personal sympathy or identification. So they are quite happy for very large numbers of people to be killed, provided, in fact, the economy works in the way which suits them. Let me see if I can ask a little bit more of a pointed question with respect to the nature of democracy. So you have written a great deal and thought a great deal upon the question of democracy 
historically what people have meant by that and how those views have changed, how that term is used and abused and has been used and abused over a long period of time, how it is evolving today, and where it has been, in your view, successfully applied, not successfully applied, less successfully applied, and so forth. Something that has long bothered me, as you know, is what I perceive to be a rampant trivialization of political systems, in particular, buttressed by the overt use of the word democracy, which very often, in my judgment, means little more than good guys, moral people, knowledgeable fellows, reasonable respecters of international law and human rights and so forth and so on, morally superior, as opposed to those terrible, tyrannical, authoritarian, reprobate types. Now, I'm not saying that there is no distinction whatsoever, and I'm certainly not saying that we live in a world without evil or without authoritarian figures or without infringements on basic human rights. And very often, those political systems that do those uh, nefarious acts are clearly non-democratic. What I'm saying is that if we trivialize, then we risk never examining how we might be able to improve our current structures. And it seems to me that there are some real tensions within any democratic system. And it seems to me that the pandemic highlights some of those, even in the best of all possible interests, even with the most uh, reasonable attempt at somehow being able to marry respect for individual civil liberties and overall policies that are in the best interests of the citizenry. And what I have in mind in particular is the tension between expert knowledge and majoritarian rule, at least as I perceive it. So let me give a, an example, a fairly celebrated example, which is the significant numbers of individuals who are convinced that vaccines are a hoax that are perpetrated on the citizenry and might even be against their health interests, and they definitely shouldn't be in any way obliged or coerced into taking such vaccines. And I imagine a situation where we live in a world, which is not difficult to imagine, it's certainly not the world in which we live in at the moment, fortunately, but it's not difficult to envision that we might live in a society where the majority of individuals are of that particular persuasion. The majority of individuals have strongly held views that run counter to expert knowledge, in this case, expert medical knowledge. And the majority of individuals, since in a democracy, the majority winds up de facto setting the rules of the game, ensure that the political representatives and the people in power are passing laws that are in keeping with their particular views. And thus, I would be living in a society that would be fully democratic, and yet not at all reflective of my overall health needs or the needs of, of everyone, and be in flagrant contradiction with expert knowledge. And I see this as being an inherent tension. And I see this as something which should be acknowledged at least, and we should try to have an, an open discussion about how we might somehow ensure that this doesn't happen within a, a fully democratic system. So that's a long preamble to eventually come, you will be relieved to know, to a couple of questions. Question number one is, do you agree that that is 
if not necessarily likely, at least a structural possibility and a failure of democracy that we that we have to pay attention to. Question number two is, do you think anybody is giving this the time of day at all in terms of recognizing that inherent tension and trying to think of ways to deal with it? And question number three is, if you think that it is uh, an issue of legitimate concern, how would you recommend that we actually deal with it? Well, it certainly is a, a, a matter of legitimate concern. It certainly is the case that we do live in such a society already, and this is not a future anxiety, it's a current fact. I don't have any very bright ideas about how we can, um, you know, definitively and reliably fix it. But what, what is definitely true is that it was always ridiculous to think of democracy simply as a good form of government. It was, it's ridiculous to think about it in that way. Democracy is a form of government. Forms of government are um, necessarily dependent on the judgment of the persons who are doing the governing. And insofar as they are in any sense at all that's uh, causally uh, substantial, democratic, insofar as they are effectively answerable to the majority of their citizens, they can reasonably uh, only be expected to perform well if their citizens are not um, uh, trying to require them or succeeded in requiring them to do things which are definitely a very bad idea, practically. So you don't have to go very deeply into the thought processes of Plato to see that it was always going to be true that a democracy, insofar as it meant the rule of the selfish idiots, was going to come out as a very, very bad system. So it's only going to be a good system in practice. I mean, a regime so termed is only going to be a good regime insofar as the government can actually launder the uh, worst misjudgments of its citizens pretty drastically and act on the best judgments which between them they make available to it. Politics and social and economic life are very, very complicated systems of divided labor. And to think that you could actually govern a country for the better on the basis of the judgments of those who are, have least grip on what the world is like is an absurd view, and obviously an absurd view. And it's been a very unfortunate effect of the espousal of democracy as the um, regime name for good government uh, across the world, that in fact it confounds so many different questions. The only sense in my judgment in which uh, democracy is not a bad uh, name for a system of legitimate government is the simple sense it provides a set of institutions through which that government is in fact selected at some point with reasonable frequency by the citizens. That doesn't guarantee that it will govern well, and it doesn't make it uh, impervious to the um, idiocy or you know, malignity of the citizens. It just means that actually there is a basis on which it can reasonably demand their obedience. And the basis is that they've chosen it. To that degree, at least they recognize practically, however foggily, 
they need to be governed in order to be, uh, you know, to live their lives on an acceptable basis. I can't help but think, returning to the question of the pandemic, that many of the responses that often invoke the word democracy were, democracy was really a code word for servicing a larger socio-political agenda. And perhaps one of the most vivid instantiations of this, while it wasn't directly tied to the pandemic, was this very recent, at least very recent at the time of this podcast, Summit for Democracy in the Biden administration. You will be relieved to know I'm going to ask you a very pointed question, and I'm going to come to the point very quickly. What do you think of the, the Summit for Democracy? What do you think the agenda was? To what extent did it actually have anything to do with democracy in any sense of the word whatsoever? And what do you think of the response that was given by the joint response by the Russian and Chinese ambassadors to the United States, indicting the United States government for organizing and leading this summit to begin with? Well, I think that the um, Summit for Democracy was part of a very naive diplomatic and geopolitical agenda of the Biden government, which involves, um, uh, yes, I mean, massing the armies of those countries which um, care about whether they're called democracy or not behind the um, uh, geopolitical aims of the United States. And I don't think that is um, at all a sensible way for the United States government to be behaving. I think it's a stupid agenda and a dangerous agenda. I think that um, in the case of both the Russian Republic and the um, People's Republic of China, there are uh, currently um, courses of action there each is currently threatening to um, pursue, which it would be wholly appropriate for the United States government to try to um, frustrate, namely the invasion of Ukraine and the invasion of Taiwan. I think both of those would be very, very wrong things and would do terrible harm. And I think you don't have to admire the political judgment of Taiwanese independence leaders or um, much about the politics of the Ukraine to think that those would be very, very wrong and um, disastrous things uh, for those governments to do. So I don't have any problem with the Biden government wishing to stop those happening. I don't think it is very well placed to ensure that uh, either doesn't happen. But I'm not against it trying. I just think that Summit for Democracy was a, a, a ridiculous um, sort of pageant. And um, I think it's not the right way to deal with either Russia or China. And it has nothing to do with the merits such as they are of democracy as a uh, system of government specified in any way at all. I'd like to turn to social media. A lot of the buzzwords that are going around these days, fake news, it's a terrible expression for so many reasons. Every time I, I utter those words, I feel like I'm giving aid and comfort to the enemy. But anyway, let me imagine it in inverted commas as it deserves to be. The idea that a scourge of our age is social media to the extent that that is a thing. The, the reification of social media as, a, as a nefarious actor in the political realm. And I have problems with 
many of these ideas and comments, notwithstanding the fact that I'm aware that social media clearly does have a negative influence in many ways. And you said something again during our recent filming that stood out to me, something that is often not expressed, which is, first of all, that the notion of a clear dichotomy between true and, and false information is itself false, that there, there is a continuum. And very often the continuum is populated by instances where people are not knowingly misleading anybody, but just because people are ignorant or people make poor judgments or false judgments or what have you. And then the second point that you make is this idea that while it's true that there is clearly an increased amount of false information which is circulating and an increased availability of partaking of false information, explicitly false, knowingly false, or otherwise, there is also correspondingly an increased amount of true information on offer, that it is far easier today than it was 15 or 20 years ago to get accurate, valuable, knowledgeable information, or at least information on the front lines of research and scholarship. And this is particularly relevant when one is in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, trying to get a sense of what the numbers are, what the information is, how vaccines work, what the latest state of the, of the medical trials are, and so forth and so on. Both of these things are downplayed considerably in my experience. Do you find that as well? Do you find that these are points that are not emphasized enough? Or in your circles are lots of people talking about this? I don't belong to a circle in which um, uh, lots and lots of people have sorted out the chaos in which we're living at the moment. I mean, what is definitely true is that even if you divided up the things human beings say to one another, into things which are true and things which are false and a very, very large portion, in my judgment, of things which are neither you know, accurately describable as just true or just false. If you take that as the matrix that you're thinking about, I think in, the, in relation to um, uh, political uh, communication as opposed to in relation to personal judgment, Let's say personal judgment, what you want to do always is to um, know uh, what's uh, true as uh, clearly and reliably as you can, and you want to know what's false as clearly and reliably as you can. And in between the two, I mean, you mostly want to know what are the things you've already noticed that are really important, where you've no idea at all whether they're true or false what of those things you can reasonably readily improve your judgment about. The, the predicament that we're in, um, what Locke called the twilight of probability, twilight rather optimistic actually, I mean, but no, anyway, less than pitch darkness of probability. There are bits we already know we need to peer very hard at and get as good judgment as we can. There is a, a, a different distinction, which is a very important distinction, and which goes to the question of communication between people, not about uh, what they personally believe, but about what they want the persons they're communicating with to believe. And that is a, a distinction between whether or not the communicator is lying. It certainly is true 
that the deliberate transfer of um, false information plays an important role in practical politics, and actually it always has done. It uh, plays a different role depending, uh, you know, over time and space, depending on the sort of technical um, uh, facilities for communication and the political and economic and social relations between the members of a society. But, but it is an important distinction always. The happy way of looking at democracy is to think of it as a political structure which, because of its um, uh, radical freedom across the entire population, permits people to judge carefully what is true and what is not true and can reasonably hope for them uh, not to lie to one another. Well, that is a very, very optimistic way of looking at any society. But it is at account of a good society, a good political society. You reference the idea that an essential aspect is whether or not one is concerned with the notion that a political leader is willfully misinforming us, is lying to us. And the question isn't so much in our capacity or ability, first and foremost, to be able to discern the truthhood or falsehood of the claim. It's our motivation in doing just that. This is a concern that I've long had. People often say things like, democracy can only thrive when the citizenry is educated. And that's a hard claim to disagree with, but I think it puts the emphasis in the wrong direction. Education is seen in this context as something necessary, but at some level fundamentally unpleasant. It's like eating one's greens. Yes, we should be educated. Yes, we really should turn our televisions to an educational channel instead of something that we really want to watch. Yes, we realize at some level that it's in our own interest, but there is this whiff of obligation. There is this whiff of condescension from the so-called elites and so forth and so on, that if only people were to think like us, or if only they were to get sufficient numbers of degrees or what have you, then all would be well. And you can see the possibility of a backlash. For me, I prefer to talk about curiosity. What is overwhelmingly perplexing to me is the fact that so few people seem to be interested. They seem to care, to be willing to engage in that imaginative solidarity or imaginative exercise. They seem to lack the will to be able to freely and enthusiastically exercise their own judgment and engage in that process of enthusiastically encountering the world and trying to make up their own mind. And that seems to me to be the problem that, that we are facing today, and perhaps we've always faced, that not sufficient numbers of people are motivated, feel compelled, are interested, not because they, they perceive it the right thing to do, not because they're told they have to do it, not because they will get money at the end of the day for, for exercising their judgment or what have you, but just because they passionately care, it's something that they're curious about, it's something that they are driven to investigate. And in fact, they vastly prefer merely associating themselves and mindlessly parroting the views of those in their social circle. That, to me, is a diagnosis of the great peril of the age that is exacerbated and emphasized to a much greater degree than it ever has been through modern communications technologies. So that's my thesis. 
So do you think that there's any merit to that? Do you think that that, in fact, overlaps, as I think it does, with some of the points that you were making? Or are we in complete disagreement and we have to get the gloves off? Well, I, no, I don't disagree with that. I just think that um, um, this is not um, a new state of affairs. I mean, education is not a very felicitous category for thinking about social organization and culture, because by culture, I mean the beliefs that people end up with as they move through their lives. I mean, education as a sort of institutionalized practice, I mean, takes place in very specific institutions. And uh, those institutions certainly don't have charismatic allure all the time for all those inside them, and they never have had and never would have. But I agree that the fundamental question is how far people do come to understand the um, situations they're in uh, across their lives. And the fundamental point from my point of view about the importance of education in the sense in which I use it is that um, we are in ever-deepening trouble at the moment as a species, and I think that there's no hope at all of our getting out of that trouble unless more of us come to recognize that and actually mind about it. And, uh, of course, going to the best possible school and even having the best possible teacher in the best possible school can't guarantee that the um, denizens recognize that there's any urgent need for them to understand um, better than they've already noticed they need to understand their circumstances and don't uh, ensure that they will um, care at all, really, for what um, those uh, circumstances imply for anyone else. So I don't think education is, a, in any sense at all, um, a technology for um, making humans good. I think that uh, it's not so clear there are any technologies for doing that, but insofar as there are, I think they're probably still pretty um, uh, rigorously um, domestic in character. And I think that what is definitely true as you move up the age grades in, uh, in the educational system is that um, the chances of... Um, as it were, deep edification of what has come out of the household deplete over time. I think if, uh, if you, um, I, I spent my life teaching in a great university and selecting people to come to it because I hoped that I, something worthwhile could happen between them and me when they came, not only between them and me, but I mean, happen for them if they came. And the way I tried to judge that was by thinking about how it might um, happen if they were being taught by me. It's always true that how much room there for hope there is depends on what the um, people in question care about. I mean, if they don't care about anything but their own you know, future income and not looking impressive in the near middle distance and uh, sensory enjoyment over the lifetime, I mean, that then actually uh, education isn't going to do anything to um, ameliorate that. I mean, that's just them. As we lurch towards a conclusion, I'd like to pick up on some of the comments that you made before about the existential challenges 
facing humanity and so forth, environmental challenges presumably, and, and how we might address them and to what extent current circumstances, recent circumstances have given us any justification for hope or fear. But before I do, let me just pick up on some of the comments you were just making with respect to your experiences as a scholar and as an educator at the University of Cambridge and ask you a personal question, if I may, about how you might have done things differently if I could put you in a time machine, knowing what you know now, back to the days when you first began at the University of Cambridge. Would you be working on things differently? Would you be pursuing different scholarly activities or not? I don't remember which year Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published, but I think it must have been actually while I was an undergraduate. I arrived in Cambridge very, very um, preoccupied with politics and uh, the politics of the world, not the politics of the United Kingdom. Uh, but I thought the two were connected as they are. And in a way, I've gone on thinking about that ever since I arrived. I've uh, thought about um, uh, different bits of politics in different ways over time, and I've done uh, quite a lot of things which were not really directly um, motivated by that, but were um, uh, required uh, practically for me to go on uh, being employed in Cambridge. So, in a sense, I mean, if I could have seen as clearly as I think I do see now what um, terrible trouble we've got ourselves into, I would have been trying to um, tilt all the things I worked on to show that in some way or other as graphically as I could, because I would have thought that was um, as urgent as it was throughout. And I definitely didn't recognize the urgency. I came from quite an ecologically susceptible um, background, um, not in a way which would attract people uh, with the right tastes uh, nowadays, because it was uh, very much a sort of hunting and gathering background with the hunting being as it were, the larger and more dangerous the beast, the better, really. I didn't do that myself. Um, I didn't hunt anything um, dangerous. Uh, I didn't hunt much that was at all large. But I was reared in that culture. And because I was reared in that culture, I mean, because, and because I, I was coming from sort of generations of it, I knew quite a lot about ecological depletion in practice. And uh, I've, uh, I mean, for all sorts of very obvious reasons, it has become clearer and clearer and clearer to me that although I thought my family were, you know, right off the globe in terms of political apprehension, they were actually quite a long way ahead of most in their apprehension of the particular sort of danger that we are in. I mean, they didn't think of it as a danger because it was a long way back then, and it wasn't discernibly a danger to them or to me, respectively. But I mean, since Rachel Carson, you could actually, if you thought about it intelligently, see that it was going to become quite dangerous for all of us. And of course, it's um, 
the danger has accelerated, I mean, devastatingly, and is still accelerating. And we have really now, I think, you know, no sort of um, solid reasons for believing that we're going to be able to um, arrest the process before it's ruined, I mean, most of um, human achievements. So, I mean, that, if, you, um, if you're a teacher, you had the sort of motivations I've had the whole way through, um, you would um, have been, um, you know, yelling away in your Cassandra mode throughout. Well, I wasn't yelling away in that mode. I was, um, I was chairman of the campaign for nuclear disarmament when I was an undergraduate. But then was then. Well, actually, that's still not an irrelevant consideration, but actually it doesn't matter much what the British government does about nuclear weapons any longer, or perhaps about you know, anything else much except from the point of view of its own citizenry. But um, then it might have mattered. Um, who knows? Um, anyway, it was, a, it was a moment. I wasn't aware of that, but that does certainly make a lot of sense now that I understand it. So let me ask you a question that I fear I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are there any reasons for optimism based upon what's happened over the past couple of years, specifically involving the pandemic or not specifically involving the pandemic? Are there any signs for optimism in any particular direction? I think there are two different uh, sorts of senses of optimism that are relevant to, to those questions. Um, I mean, one is summative. I mean, you know, last instance conclusion. I would say nothing has occurred so far which uh, doesn't uh, increase the grounds for pessimism as opposed to optimism. If it means have any things happened or been done, which are examples of how we clearly could be acting in a less foolish and destructive way at different levels, the answer is yes, there are lots and lots and lots of them. I don't think, well, one of them actually you could say is, um, the pandemic will do well for showing what I mean. And one of them is the speed at which vaccines were um, uh, discovered and were deployed in um, a few uh, very rich countries. The fact is that the scientific and medical resources of the world equip us to deal with a pandemic threat in a way that uh, certainly we couldn't possibly have dreamed of doing earlier in human history. On the other hand, um, what has actually happened has depended very largely on the routine politics of different countries. And th those are very rigid structures and they heavily prioritize interests which are definitely not the interests of the human species as a whole in the face of a pandemic. And I would say, well, if you look at this as it always is, as a race between the things which are making things worse and the things which are making things better, I would say that in the face of the pandemic, once again, the things that are making things worse have um, been winning over the things that are making things better. And I don't think that's an accident. So the more analytic and the more, um, in a sense, um, uh, detached, uh, you want me to make my judgments. I mean, the less grounds I can see for summative optimism. 
But I don't think it's a closed book already. I don't think we just certainly are doomed and that's that. Intergenerational justice, sort of thing philosophers like to think about, I mean, is a completely incoherent idea in my view. But anyway, I mean, it doesn't make sense as an idea. You can't get it to make sense as an idea. But anyway, um, I think um, we are certainly in a condition of very aggravated intergenerational injustice at the moment. And I don't see any means of, um, uh, of as it were, um, changing that, I suppose. On the other hand, I can see all sorts of things, and I do constantly all the time see all sorts of things which would be very much better if we weren't doing, or very much better if we were doing, or probably very much better if only we did and so on. I, it's not, um, there's choice the whole way through. I mean, if we are doing ourselves, we're doing so by what we choose. So picking up on that, virtually all rational people should feel concerned and dispirited by your conclusions. And there is a sense that I'm sure many people, and let's focus on younger people, would have, that would be verging on the nihilistic. I mean, you, you said, words to the effect of you don't think the story is over yet, but it's not particularly optimistic. And there doesn't seem to be a tremendously large window of opportunity for us to act. So moving to the personal level, and I realize that you're not in the business of giving individual advice, but I'm going to ask you to do that anyway. If you can imagine somebody who's listening to this, who's 15, who's 18, who is filled with enthusiasm and vigor, and determination to make the world a significantly better place. What sorts of actions and activities would you recommend that she do? And how would you be able to meaningfully assuage her that it's not hopeless? Well, I wouldn't be able to tell her that it's not hopeless, because that would actually, in my judgment, be a lie. I mean, because it would be uh, pretending that I could see that hope was uh, epistemically appropriate. And uh, as I've said, I mean, I'm, I fear that the probability is uh, that it is actually epistemically hopeless. But I, I would uh, talk to her in a different way, I suppose. I would say, well, look, you have your life ahead of you. You should read The Death of Ivan Illich, I would say. You want to think of your life in terms of how it's going to feel to you as it ends. What is going to be most important at that point is what you feel about the life you have actually lived. And it's better to have lived a life which was trying to be of value than to have lived a life which had a very large total of thrills in it. Uh, you know, buffered by, you know, ample surrounding relaxation. I, I mean, you're not going to feel great about your life at that point, if that's how it was. I can't tell you that caring for other people and um, responding to the beauty of the world is uh, provably right. All I can tell you is it's a steadier source of purpose and um, ease in living than um, ignoring what you uh, know to be um, harming others and um, just getting on with having a rollicking good time. You would find it will have been a better life. 
So I don't see the grounds for hope as being um, somehow sort of written in the um, table of chemical elements or um, the stars or the mind of God. I just see it as being there in the living, really. I think that the project of trying to um, prevent the ruin of the world for humans is a you know, more um, rewarding project than having a rollicking good time. I don't mean I don't want to have a rollicking good time quite often myself. I just think it's not um, a life, that. I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details. Thank you.